0: Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge.
1: They're not looking for somebody that says, here's the answer to your legal question. They want to know how they can solve the problem that prompted them to come to us in the first place. So we've always tried to look at ourselves as problem solvers and to recognize that there is no one size fits all solution for the kinds of problems that come our way. Sometimes the best solution is in the legislature.
0: All right, folks, we brought Alex Titus back off the bench for a very special podcast episode. Today, we interviewed Bob Sterringer and Bill Gary, both of Haring Long PC, which, as you know, is the sponsor of this podcast and sponsor of the Liftoff newsletter. But Bob and Bill are well-respected attorneys in their own right. And Haring Long is actually a super interesting firm, as we talk about in this episode but this is not a sales pitch episode. Actually, there's a ton of if you we've been getting some really good feedback on our like Oregon recent Oregon history podcasts about the 70s, 80s, 90s. You know, Tom McCall, Vickety, etc. There's some very fun stuff in this episode about Dave Fronmeyer. Both of them knew him personally for decades. He actually worked. Fronmeyer worked for the firm. Bill Gary was featured on Wild Wild Country, the very popular Netflix documentary, because he was a central figure in the Rajneeshis crisis. He was Dave Fronmeyer's number two in the attorney general's office while this was all going on. So we talk about, we got some Oregon history stuff, but we also talk about the changing nature of the legal field and how Herring Long has sort of like been at the cutting edge of what that looks like. We talk about PERS reform, where they've been at the center of some of the most important and impactful PERS decisions in this state over the last several decades, and a lot of different things in between. But it was a fun episode to record. Alex, any thoughts or things for folks to look for?
2: Yeah, it was a great episode. I think, you know, just a really interesting, something I'm really interested in particularly too, is just the convergence of law, business, and politics. And of course, their firm and both of them have been at the forefront of this, not even just in recent time, but I mean, basically working at that intersection for decades. We also talk a little bit, I wish we got to talk more about it, but kind of the driving nature of lawsuits and politics and Mm -hmm. how the legal realm in general is just having a much bigger impact on political outcomes than it used to in the past. And of course, as Bob had a great answer to this, but it's always been there. But you know, they feel it's becoming even more prominent. I'm sure our viewers and listeners know that too. Lawsuits seem to be stopping everything both on the right and left, uh, really no matter what state that you're in. So yeah, really interesting episode. And I mean, they give a lot of insights both about law and then some really interesting insights of Oregon political history too. So
0: yeah. And before we jump into the episode, I did just want to say again our thanks to Harang Long. Alex, you put out a notice a few months ago, sort of trying to feel out if folks were interested in sponsoring. And we heard back from a few folks, but Harang Long was the first and the most excited to partner with us. So they believe in this product as a podcast. They believe in the newsletter. So we just want to say thank you to them for their partnership with Oregon 360 Media. We really appreciate it. And with that, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Bill Gary and Bob Sterringer.
3: Orang Long PC has always recognized that achieving our clients' goals sometimes requires a change in the law, and in other situations, clients need help stopping or changing proposed amendments to the law that put their interests at risk. For decades, we have played a role in shaping Oregon law on many subjects, from narrow regulations to major policy changes implicating billions of dollars. Our lawyers work with clients to draft legislation, prepare legal opinions and testimony to share with legislators, coordinate with professional lobbyists, and work directly with policymakers. To learn more about Harang Long's policy and politics practice, go to harang.com. That's h a r r a n
0: g.com. All right. Bob Steringer and Bill Gary, welcome to the podcast.
1: Good to see you. be here.
0: As we mentioned in the intro, you are sponsors of Oregon 360. So first, we want to say thank you for supporting our company and helping us do what we do. And Alex and I have been excited about recording this episode for a few reasons. We're going to cover a lot of ground today because you all have been involved in some very interesting work. But before we get into that, we kind of want to start with what's the origin of your firm? Obviously, the, the name has been shortened. You're Harang Long. But where did this firm come from? How did it get started?
1: The firm dates back to 1957 in Eugene. It first opened in downtown Eugene on the second floor above a tannery. My partner, Jim Harang, was one of the founders, and he used to talk about how every time he smells fresh leather, (laughs) it reminds him of the good old days when Work hours were six days a week. They went home at noon on Saturday. And the youngest, newest associate was responsible for sweeping the sidewalk outside the stairs that led up. <laughs> they did divorces and criminal, minor criminal stuff, and formed businesses and all the sorts of things that go on in small towns and kind of grew up with the city. By the time I joined, the firm in 1989, they were setting out to try to do the best legal work on the most interesting cases and do it in Eugene, Oregon. And that's what appealed to me. I wanted the good stuff, but I wanted to live, have the quality of life of a small university town. So that's the origins of the firm. It's been through a couple generations now, and we're in the middle of another generational change as some of us more senior people head out to pasture.
2: <laughs> Alex? Great. Right. Yeah, And the, ne- the next question that I wanted to ask was just, you know, kind of more about the types of clients that you have, the types of services. Obviously, there's quite a, a lot of areas if you you know just go ahead and look on the website that you do cover. It's quite, a, would say a lot of areas of expertise of, you know, maybe a, I would say not a, a very small, but a, you know, relatively small and mighty team compared to say, maybe one of the bigger law firms. What does a typical client look like? What does a typical engagement look like? imagine that can vary from some probably more bland things to some really interesting things that you thought maybe you never would have got into or sort of cases you would have worked on. But what does that kind of look like?
3: Well, you're absolutely right about the variety of clients and the right variety of matters that we handle on a day-to-day basis across the three offices of the firm now. I think that we're probably most recognized for handling two types of matters. One would be matters that have some sort of connection with government or politics or public policy. And then the other category would be appellate law. And so if I can just kind of focus on those two, and then I'll mention a few other things that we do. Our practice at the intersection of of law and public policy a lot of times involves the representation of governmental entities. And over the years, our focus has been on clients that are local governments, special Mm -hmm. districts, school districts, colleges, and universities, as well as intergovernmental entities. And we help those clients with every sort of legal matter that they might encounter. Some of those matters are specific to governmental entities, things like public contracting or public records, open meetings law, and then a lot of it is the sort of work that we would do for any other organizational client, like employment work or, or real estate matters. I think the where we probably have the most unique skills in the area of governmental representation is in the interactions between different governmental entities. And those interactions might be adversarial. We might talk at some point about For example, cases that arise between local governments and the state government over public employee retirement obligations, but the interactions could also be collaborative. For example, well, a few years back, Bill and I got to help the community of Mosier in the Columbia River Gorge create an intergovernmental entity that they could use to collectively negotiate with Union Pacific after there was a train derailment there that caused quite a bit of damage in the, in the community. So because we have this history of representing local governments and state governments, we
0: were pretty well suited to help clients in those areas. Dumb question before, Alex, you follow up. An intergovernmental entity would be like city, county, water district kind of you know, all coming together? What what does it actually look like? How does it function?
3: Yeah, well, state law allows local governments to form these, well, they start with the ability to enter into agreements with each other, to allow all of the entities to collaborate, to do any of the work that any one of them needs to do. They can also through ORS chapter 190, create an entity itself that exists in a way that is a bit separate from the entities that create it. And there's a lot of flexibility that's provided to local governments in doing that. Usually they'll create a board that combines the boards of the the different local entities to work together to, you know, to achieve whatever their goal might be. Uh, using the Mosher example, that's exactly what happened. The three governments that were involved each appointed a number of people to a combined board that was responsible for deciding what they would do collectively. Hmm, That's cool.
2: That's actually, that's really interesting. And I'm curious of, and I know there's, you know, that you all do quite a bit of work in terms of dealing with, you know, some of the different agencies, some different departments and things like that. But on that specific question where, I don't think you phrased it like this, but where maybe a state government or a city government entity might be at odds with a local government entity, that's really interesting. I guess something I hadn't even really thought of, but probably happens quite frequently. What are some examples of that that maybe some interesting stories that you've had or some interesting cases on that front?
3: I think, Bill, maybe you might want to talk about our involvement in PERS. I think that's uh, Mm. maybe the the best example of that.
1: Yeah, it's a fight that local governments have been having with state government since uh, the late 1990s, at least. And This is a situation where the local governments, cities, counties, school districts are basically required to be members of PERS, Mm -hmm. the Public Employee Retirement System, and they contribute money to the fund to fund the retirements of their employees, and they're required to join, and they operate under something that I call the Hotel California rule. Mm -hmm. They can check out any time they want, but they can never leave once you're in PERS you're there forever. And in the late 90s, there was a period of incredible growth in the stock market. And PERS was earning 15, 20, 25% every year. And the cost of the program to the employers, which is expressed as a percentage of payroll, in other words, you pay 10% of your payroll to PERS, Mm -hmm. kept going up and going up dramatically. 1% one percent of payroll back in 2000 equaled 64 million dollars and they were seeing increases of 10 percent from 10 percent of payroll to 20 percent of payroll. so that there was a lot of money and that impaired the ability of local governments that have very little ability to raise taxes that what it translated into was fewer, cops on the street, fewer teachers in the classroom, because they were funding retirement plan that had gotten out of control. They tried to go to the legislature. The legislature was totally uninterested in doing anything about it. And so we recommended that we initiate a lawsuit. And I was very clear at the outset that if you're going to sue PERS, you're going to lose. But If you lose in a spectacular way, you may be able to get the attention of the legislature for the problem. Hmm. Hmm. Turns out we ended up in front of an outstanding judge, Paul Lipscomb. We sued on behalf of the city of Eugene, city of Portland, Multnomah County, Lane County, several others. And Judge Lipscomb ruled in our favor. He held that the way that PERS was being operated was inconsistent with the statutes, and it was resulting in out-of-proportion benefits, and it was resulting in costs that, under the statutes, the legislature couldn't legally charge to employers, local governments. That led to reform legislation that was passed in 2001, Governor Kulingoski introduced the bill as one of his first official acts when he became governor. It passed, it was challenged. The court invalidated some of it, upheld some of it. And over the last 20 years, there have been a series of decisions that have been issued by the Supreme Court, and the legislature has passed a series of reforms that began the process of trying to bring FERS back under control and making the costs reasonable. And so that's just one of many examples of where the state government and its local governments can
0: end up at odds. Was the the core of the argument back in 2001 when you're representing basically like it was about the impact, like the impact of the structure of PERS? was debilitating for local budgets, or was it in layman's terms, non-lawyer terms? What were you arguing to the courts? Well,
1: PERS you know, collects the money, and then it the statutes provide for a benefit mm-hmm. to the members. And there are three different ways that you calculate the benefit, and the member always gets whatever the highest benefit is under those three formulas. We argued that the PERS board had been doing basically two things wrong. They'd been miscalculating benefits and they had been over-crediting member accounts with earnings. So for tier one members, the the oldest members of PERS, they were guaranteed to earn at least 8% per year on their accounts. But when the fund earned 20%, the PERS board would credit 20%. And when the fund earned
0: 0%, it was the first board would credit 8%. <laughs> so it's defined benefit, except for if you got more, then it was exactly a higher benefit. And, okay. and, and
1: you know, I, I've looked for years for investment vehicles that have that feature where you get all of the upside and none of the downside, and and they don't exist. And the court held that, the trial court held, that indeed they had been overcrediting member accounts. And that had resulted in the costs going up and benefits going well beyond what the legislature ever intended. In 2000, the average PERS retiree was retiring at uh, with a pension that was 106% okay. of their working salary.
0: Yeah,
1: And in some cases, it was a lot more than that. And And so it's been a process of trying to through the legislature, where you can, you know, contract the benefits so that you bring the cost down to a manageable level. But it's complicated because the court has held that the statutes that create PERS are a contractual promise to members. So you can't just go in and say, well, we're going to change the rules now. You have to be a little bit more creative.
0: Yeah, it's like, Yeah. Well as a as an opsert member whose mother was a tier 1 member and knowing the difference between those two I'm trying to decide if I should be blaming you for this or not but we'll, we'll, we'll let it slide. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you and a lot of other people I remember I spent the first part of my legal career as a public employee in uh, the attorney general's office and uh-huh. and my friends are mostly pers members and some of them are still talking to me.
2: Um, <laughs> but but
1: it, you know that comes with the territory.
2: And I will say, Bill, my my mother who is probably listening to this clearly must have been following you with this case because her language is almost verbatim with you. And she said, I can't find any financial vehicle that gives you the full upside with none of the downside. So the in addition to the legal strategy that we're clearly the, the PR strategy yeah. was working <laughs> is working is for my mother. <laughs> but but Bill, I think that's a great example of the next question that I wanted to ask, which was actually slightly a, a personal question i was just interested in but i think fits your firm really well the wall street journal usually like once or twice a year will do kind of like an interesting deep dive on the just kind of the law field in general they've had a bunch of articles one was about how at big firms it's a lot harder to make partner now and it's less focused on law knowledge more focused on business development you know they kind of have these different deep dives which i think are are really interesting but one of them in particular was talking about how the legal industry is just changing a lot in general from, you know, more sort of as, okay, I'm going to hire your firm to serve as counsel to much more becoming, you are a counsel, but you are also a general consultant to us in a way as well, whether that be politics, business, finance, technology, whatever it might be. And of course, I think that fits really well into what you all do, especially just from that example that you had gave regarding PERS. I mean, I imagine When you're talking about both the financial side of it, the public policy side of it, also just frankly, the idea of saying we're probably going to lose, but we should do this because it might have this outcome, I think requires quite a bit of political savvy, probably, well, political business, uh, whatever you might want to call it, savvy that a lot of other firms don't, you know, probably offer in that space, which I think makes you all really unique. But, you know, help us kind of understand, like, is that a is that a fair assessment of where you think the legal industry is going? Do you think that that's really helped harangue long kind of shine above the others in terms of bringing that, of course, the legal expertise, but then also the outside political, you know, finance expertise too? Hmm.
1: Good question. I'm glad to hear, at least according to the Wall Street Journal, that our colleagues in other firms are coming around to the view that they have to deal with the client in a holistic way. Clients don't come to us with legal problems. They come to us with problems. Mm -hmm. And they have often a political aspect, a public relations aspect, a business overlay, and possible litigation or possible legislation that they have to deal with. And they're not looking for somebody that says, well, here's the answer to your legal question. They want to know how they can solve the problem that prompted them to come to us in the first place. So we've always tried to look at ourselves as problem solvers and and to recognize that, you know, there's an old adage that if the only tool you have is a hammer, everything starts to look like like a nail. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and, and we try to recognize that there is no one size fits all solution for the kinds of problems that come our way. Sometimes the best solution is in the legislature, sometimes it's administrative, sometimes it's public relations, and often it's all three or all of the above. And we like to try to make sure that our firm has a toolbox of things that we can bring to bear on a problem so we have uh, one of our attorneys is a is a full-time lobbyist we have good connections with firms that deal with crisis communications and the like so that we can craft solutions to the problem that will get the client where they want to go often it's not by way of what they thought they wanted but mm-hmm. but if you listen to the client and figure out what they are looking for and what they need, you usually can find a way to get them where they need to go.
0: How does this work for, I've, I've never been in this situation, like does a city manager or a mayor call you and say, hey, there's this train derailment. It was a disaster. We don't know what to do. Or do they come and say, we want to sue these guys. And then you say, well, here's another way to think about it. Like, how does it logistically work? I'm sure there's a lot of different iterations of what this might look like, but what does the beginning of a relationship
2: look like?
3: I think a lot of times that first phone call does involve a potential client who right out of the gates wants to sue somebody because they're usually in the, the heat of whatever the the issue is. And part of what we do is help channel that into you know, an outcome that actually achieves their goals. I think Bill just described it pretty well. What we have to do at the beginning is definitely hear what the problem is that's being expressed to us, but try to draw out what sort of outcome the client would like to have. Because if if we're not outcome focused from the beginning, we're likely to miss opportunities to actually achieve the best result possible. And so a lot of times I think about this, I used to do a lot more work that was in more traditional business litigation. And and what I came to learn is that most pieces of business litigation are really just opportunities for new business transactions. And so what you want to do as a business litigator is try to figure out what a a corporate client wants to have as the outcome. And usually that's something that's going to be accomplished through some sort of settlement and new transaction and probably cannot be achieved through litigation. So it's important that we really understand where we're trying to go. And then you assemble the team of professionals who can can make that happen. Sometimes uh, we can do that entirely in-house but it's really important for us to have relationships with with other professionals, as Bill just described, so that if we need to draw on expertise to fill in the gaps that we might have as lawyers, we're able to do that. Hmm.
2: And I'm glad you brought up the litigation piece, because I did have one question for, uh, for whoever who would like to take it. I know you've both been working in this kind of particular space for a long time, but has the... From your perspective, has the amount of litigation when it comes to political matters increased over the years? And I ask that because there's been, you know, at least nationally some think pieces, which of course always take for a grain of salt, saying that both the kind of political right and the left are using litigation more often when it comes to political matters. And I think a perfect example of this in Oregon was the Measure 114, which passed, you know, different restrictions on firearms and things like that. And then, National organizations, I believe it was the Gun Owners of America, came in, instituted a lawsuit in Herney County. I don't know. I know it went to the Supreme Court a number of times, maybe even a number of different suits. But I mean, essentially, voters in Oregon passed a measure. A outside group was able to take this measure to the court. And from my understanding, there has still been no movement on the measure to this point because of a very specific lawsuit that an organization, I think, very smartly put forward. And I think that Kind of goes back to your example, Bill, and you said, "Well, we should try to, you know, basically do the lawsuit, and then, you know, maybe something might happen. And if it doesn't, it might cause this." But have you been seeing that more often, kind of in your work over the years, or has that always been happening? It's just gotten more attention, kind of in the papers. Curious of your thoughts on that.
3: I think we are seeing more of that than we did before. I'm I'm now twenty-four years out of law school, and I was heavily involved in politics prior to law school. And so I've had an eye on what's going on in that arena for quite a while now. I had always had it in mind that I'd be interested in combining those two practices or those two areas in one way. But there really weren't a lot of opportunities to do that, I would say, until the last, I don't know, five, Five years, mm-hmm. maybe ten years, where I really oh, do wow. think we've seen a huge spike in the use of, of litigation in connection with political matters. It's certainly not unique. There are historical examples of it. This firm, for example, was in the early two thousands, was involved in litigation around measure thirty seven, which was a land use? A land use uh, initiative that required Compensation to people who could claim that their property was their property values were impaired by government regulation. So it's not as if it didn't occur in the past. It just seems like everything right now that involves any sort of controversial political matter turns into litigation. That's good for us, I'd say, because <laughs> we're we're really well equipped to help clients in that arena, uh, whether it's you know, healthy for the the, the civic environment may be a different question.
0: That is a really interesting question. And Bill, I'd let you jump in next. One consequence of this, and we see it at the national level, right, is the courts become more politicized, right? Like, because they have to decide on more inherently political questions. Is that the the trend you're noticing?
1: I I do think that there is a perception, at least, that Mm. the courts are being politicized, particularly federal courts depending on where you are in what state you are state courts have, have some of them have been political forever judges <laughs> are elected they run as right. Democrats and Republicans and it's just the way it is Oregon has a lo- very long tradition of a of an independent judiciary and even though we elect our judges for the most part they are they appear at least to be, rather apolitical one of the things in addition to just the frequency I think that has changed in this kind of litigation is that it is much more strategic and and people are much more sophisticated hmm. in the way that they approach it you'll see lawsuits being filed in uh, you know a district in Texas because they yeah think they're going to get a more favorable judge and that judge might issue a nationwide injunction that stops some federal law in its tracks there has always been political litigation it's been you know that's what i've done most of my career in part because i started in the ag's office and and it you know, that's the kind of work that the AG's office does. But I think that it's become more contentious and people have a much better understanding of how to use the system to achieve political ends.
0: Hmm. That's actually a, a good transition to the next topic we want to talk about, which is, I think, I think your time in the attorney general's office. Was Dave Fronmeier AG when you worked in the attorney general's office?
1: Yes, Dave was elected to the Office of Attorney General in 1980, took office in January 1981. I'd already been in the AG's office when he came in, but I then served as his Solicitor General and as his second-in-command, the Deputy Attorney General, until I left the AG's office in 1989. He insisted that he was going to run for a third-term I told him I hadn't signed up for a third term, but um, <laughs> but he did get reelected a third time and served into the early 90s.
0: Real quickly, well, actually two quick just uh, logistical questions here. Who was AG when you started?
1: Jim Redden was the AG when I started and he left when he was appointed to the federal bench in 19 late 1979. And the governor had to appoint His successor, but Republican Governor Vicatia didn't want to appoint a Democrat, and he had to by law because Redden was a Democrat. So he insisted that whoever he appointed agree that they would not run. run. (laughs) And he appointed Jim Brown, who was a former district attorney and appellate lawyer in DOJ. And Jim had been in the appellate division. And the Solicitor General at the time did not impress him. And so his first official act was to fire the Solicitor General. And then he showed up in my little office in the trial division and asked me how I'd like to be Solicitor General for six months, because we all knew that whoever the new AG was going to be was going to bring in their own
0: clean house. Yeah.
1: So I became Solicitor General. Dave got elected, and the first time I met him, there was a meeting of uh, district attorneys that was held in my office, and the meeting broke up around noontime, and I went back to my office, and Dave followed me into my office and introduced himself and said, do you have time to get a bite to eat? And because I was so politically astute, my response was... No, I've got to get a brief out. I'm sorry. (laughs)
0: And
1: Dave kind of looked surprised and left. And I put my head on my desk and said, my career is over now. (laughs) Uh, He decided he wanted me to stick around anyway.
0: Probably because he thought you were so hardworking that you had to go do this brief. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so we're lining up a podcast, actually, to talk about the 1990 governor's election, which was between... Meyer, yeah. Barbara Roberts, Al Mobley, transformational moment in Oregon history in a lot of different ways. It was also Measure Five election, which obviously set us on a course in terms of state finance. But part of what makes that story really interesting is, and I only got to meet him one time, which I regret and I wish I would have got to know Dave Frohnmeyer better. But the sort of mystique of Dave Frohnmeyer was like he was the most popular politician in Oregon. He was kind of like the next iteration of the sort of like Hatfield, McCall, sort of like moderate Republican. You know, he's, I think, pro-choice, which is what triggered Al Mobley's entrance into the race, which, you know, obviously the rest is history. I'm kind of curious as someone, and I should clarify, he worked for your firm after later in his career, correct?
1: Yes. After he retired as president of the University of Oregon, he served for, uh, un- until his death as and of counsel attorney with us one of the great moments in my career was the opportunity to reunite with him and work with him on some pretty interesting cases i can only imagine
0: so i'm kind of just curious on an interpersonal level like you obviously knew him in a different way than just him as a politician like what was dave fronmeier like what was it like to work closely with him what do you remember about dave
1: dave was one of a kind to be sure what stands out i think to most people who have met him and dealt with him is his amazing intellect it kind of made me nervous when i first started working with him just being around him because he was you know 40 or 50 iq points ahead of where i was and i he he also had a very very clear understanding of Public service and what it means to be involved in government. And I think he convinced all of us that were working in the Department of Justice at the time that we were doing important work Mm -hmm. for the public. People today talk about the deep state. He used to talk about career public servants. Mm -hmm. And there are dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of people scattered around state and local government still today who were disciples of Dave, worked for Dave during his tenure as Attorney General. And he made us believe that what we were doing was worthwhile and that we were valuable as part of the team. It Working in those days in DOJ, even with the Rajneeshis and all of the upset, was a little bit like Camelot mm. for me, which is why I was so excited to have him.
0: Join us when he was ready to come back and practice law again. That's I'm trying to decide how much more I want to talk about Dave Bronmeier, but uh, we also want to talk about the Rajanishis. Uh, I I just want to I I don't know if you have any thoughts of this either of you on this question. One of the first things I I was a student at U of O, and someone sent me a piece he wrote. I think it was called like the I should have looked this up before the episode, but it's like. New tribalism or something. Yes, he, yes. He, it was like very prescient, and it was I think partially informed by his experience in the nineteen ninety election, but also observing how politics shifted later. And it was basically about the increased polarization and tribalism that we see in the political space. And he he is the a perfect example of a politician who got caught in the middle of it because he was not a tribalistic person, I think, by his nature or by his politics, but. Um, I don't know if you ever spoke with him or that or have any personal reflections on on that question.
1: I think about that article quite often because, as you said, I think it was prescient. I think he saw the trend and where we were headed as a nation long before most of us did, and it, and it deeply concerned him. On a personal level, the governor's race in 1990 may well have turned out the way it needed to for Dave Fronemaier. As you know, he had family issues with his children that were very sick. And we often talked about how that election, both with the election of the governor, but also passage of Measure 5, kind of set Oregon on a course for the next 25 years. But on a personal level, It was very difficult to be the public figure that he was, and it would have been very difficult to be governor and also tend to the family Mm. needs that he had. He balanced it in a way that that I always found remarkable. And I, I asked him one time, how do you do that? How do you cope with such overwhelming personal issues at the same time that you're dealing with the weightiest problems facing the state. And his answer was typical Fronmeyer. He said, if you think about it in gross, it'll overwhelm you. You have to chunk away at it. Just keep chipping at something until it gives. And eventually you can start making progress. That was the way Dave approached it. I've talked with his, his uh, wife, Lynn, over the years about what Dave would think about what has happened in politics in the country in the last eight years. And it's one of the times when I look at the the state of politics, when I miss him the most, I think his voice is needed today, maybe more than ever.
0: Bob, did you get to interact with Dave at all? Were you at the firm when he was
3: I was well you know I volunteered on his campaign as a as a youngster in 19 I was a fanboy I guess no kidding. <laughs> what 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 you'd say and it was as a you know somebody relatively new to the political process it was kind of crushing when he lost that election I wasn't as tuned in of course to what that might have meant for him and his family but for me as somebody who also grew up in Medford as he did and who felt like he was just a, an incredibly brilliant and inspirational leader, it was hard for me to understand why my fellow Oregonians didn't all go the same way on that. So when when we had the opportunity to have uh, Dave join the firm, it was just it was just a mind blowing thing for me to have that happen 10, 15 years Gosh, I guess it's even longer than that. You know, many years after I had first uh, on the campaign. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he's he's definitely the type of person and the type of lawyer that that should serve as an example for anybody coming into the the field now. And as as Bill said, it's what's disappointing to me is uh, about the current political environment is that I think that we've lost the ability to. Communicate with the sort of 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 grace and nuance, I guess that that I always felt that Dave brought to brought to issues, and that's you know ultimately that seemed to be something that was used against him, frankly, in the 1990 election, that that he had that sort of of um, kind of nuanced and common sense approach to politics a time when we were starting to see a turn away from that locally and across the country.
0: Well, this makes me really hopeful that we're going to be able to do a deep dive on the 1990 election, but we wouldn't have the personal connection to Dave that you both have. So thanks for sharing some of that. Bill, you alluded to a really important event. You said before we started recording that it wasn't fun at the time, but the Rajneeshi crisis, I guess you could say. We talked to Jim Moore about Vikatia as governor during this crisis and how Vikatia literally carried an unsigned executive order declaring martial law in Wasco County throughout the tenure. Like it's just so hard to imagine today any equivalent of that. So Fronmeier's AG, while this is happening, you're his number two in command. You know, decades later, you become an international celebrity because Netflix puts you on on <laughs> wild, wild country. What was your role? What was your sort of engagement with the Rajnishis during this time?
1: Well, it was pretty all-encompassing. There was uh, the thing that I think, to the extent that people are aware of the Rajneeshis today, I always forget that a lot of people in important positions weren't even, you know, paying attention back in the 80s. But this was a group that created a commune in central Oregon on a 64,000 acre ranch, and they built a city. And then they incorporated the city as a municipality. And at the end, it was exposed as a criminal conspiracy, and several people went to jail, and there were prosecutions and, and so forth. And I was involved in all of that. But there's another aspect of the whole relationship of Rajneesh to the government that I think is perhaps even more informative today. When you have a religion that controls a city, they owned all of the land within the city, it creates a series of problems. Cities, as we discussed earlier, literally interact with the state government in hundreds of different ways, on a daily basis, police training, access to law enforcement data, the ability to to obtain police equipment that is not privately permitted, school, land use, Mm. use, and, and a host of other issues, revenue sharing. And these questions came at us from every direction. All of our agency clients had questions about how do we deal with the city of Rajneeshpuram. And Dave decided early on that we had to take a a comprehensive look at that rather than trying to deal with it on an issue-by-issue basis. And that resulted in issuing an opinion that concluded that the city of Rajneeshpuram could not lawfully be incorporated and exercise government power because that violated the establishment clause it was a violation of the separation of church and state and is they knew this,
0: also is that when they went after antelope and said okay well if we can't be our own city we're going to go is that how that happened yes and beyond that they intended also
1: to take over the county and that's the reason why they brought in thousands of homeless people so that right. they could vote why they engaged in schemes to poison voters in the Dallas so that they wouldn't be able to show up at the polls. All of that sprung from the opinion that their city was unconstitutional. And obviously, there was a lot of blowback, and we knew that our opinion was just our opinion. And so we went to court to have the court declare that it was unconstitutional, and Judge Helen Fry ultimately issued her decision agreeing with us and invalidating the city of Rajneeshpuram, and that happened, as these things do, just about the time that the entire thing collapsed, <laughs> and people were being arrested and sent to jail for a period of time. The attorney general and and I and uh, the the governor and his staff and the U.S. attorney and the superintendent of state police, we were having twice a day telephone calls oh my God. just to make sure everybody was aware of what was going on. And you have to remember this was happening just a few years after Jim Jones had oh, that's uh, right. in, induced hundreds of people to commit suicide in, yeah. mm-hmm. in the South American jungle. So it was a to us, it was a very real threat. Is that,
0: that what the is that what the greatest fear was? Like a mass suicide or Jim Moore alluded to this fear that the locals would sort of like take matters into their own hands and show up at Rajneesh Param with guns or something. Like what were your fears in the Attorney General's office?
1: Well, I, I think it was primarily the latter that there would it would come to what would amount to a range war from the locals who were seriously outnumbered. I mean, there were like 100 people that lived in Antelope and thousands that were on the ranch. But also the the Rajneeshpuram was situated in a box canyon with one road in and out. And they had a police force that was heavily armed and was larger than most city police departments in the state. And we were at a point where we were talking about executing arrest warrants and, and how you do that without having uh, some kind of conflagration was a very great concern. Then they brought in a people, they just started rounding up homeless people from Washington, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, and brought them to Puram after it became clear that their attempt to take over the county wasn't going to succeed. I got a call from the governor's chief of staff one night at midnight, and she said, There are three vans driven by Rajneeshis, and they are driving through neighborhoods in the Dalles, dropping off homeless people two or three at a time, and they're flashing automatic weapons. What should we do?
0: What's the answer, Bill? <laughs> <What is it?
2: laughs> like, probably probably call the police. You know? so that sounds pretty bad.
0: Yeah, the police force in Antelope is like one quarter-time retired guy,
2: probably. P- part-time well, volunteer, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I can't say I remember the answer that I gave as well as I remember the question. <laughs> it does stand out as the most interesting uh, late-night phone call that I think I've ever received.
0: So were you did you ever interact with the rajneeshis like did you ever interact with or what what was the interaction between the ag's office and i guess the leadership of the cult
1: well it varied o- over the years after the ag issued his opinion on the church state issue it was pretty much outright hostility coming from them and before that we tried to deal with them in a professional way. And we actually had some very interesting and good interactions. But the day that I argued the church-state case in Judge Fry's courtroom, Mm. she actually ruled from the bench in our favor. Everybody left the courtroom. I was packing up my bag. And Ma'anad Sheila, who was the leader of of the Rajneeshis, said, oh, let me get the door for you. And she held the door as I was walking out of the courtroom and she stuck her foot out and tripped me and I fell flat on my face. Oh, my God. Uh, That's what I remember about my interactions, personal interactions with Rajnishis after the opinion.
0: I don't know if you can answer this question. And I'm sure that... So she, like, kind of avoided very much accountability for the very significant role that she played in all this. She's still alive, I think, living in Europe, you know, doing whatever. But how how did it come to pass that, like, you know, you mentioned some people got arrested, some people, I think, were convicted. But it seems like the folks at the very top escaped accountability. Is that perception accurate? Well,
1: it's all in the eye of the beholder, of course. But she did get arrested in Germany and extradited to the United States and she pled guilty and she went to prison.
0: She did, okay.
1: Uh, She did. And, of course, Bhagwan was deported and died back in India.
0: Did you ever Uh, file charges against him? We did not. The federal
1: authorities did. They were taking the lead on the immigration issues, the uh, fake marriages and that sort of thing. And our focus was more on the... The poisonings and and uh, attempted murders and and those things. I think that the perception that there was no accountability just isn't true. But given the fact that the things that were uncovered eventually that are pretty well documented in the documentary that you mentioned, you know, it's easy to understand why someone would look at that and say, "How did somebody get away so lightly?" Having been so profoundly on the wrong side of the law,
0: my la- I you know I always do this like I'm like oh yeah we'll be done by five o'clock and then I get carried away. Uh, <laughs> last question, last sort of meta question on this bill, and then Alex will close. I'm kind of curious what the Netflix experience was like and how you alluded to this before we started recording, but how that sort of impacted your day to day life after you participated in it.
1: So I gave an interview to the documentarians and ended up being featured in this, I think, five-part series. When it came out, I'd forgotten about it. It was not a particularly significant event to have given the interview. But I started getting calls from people all over the country that I hadn't heard from in 20 years, telling me, that they'd seen me in this documentary. And I think I mentioned my oldest daughter was little at the time. And when she saw the documentary, she suddenly had interest in my work for the first time (laughs) in her life. And she said, gee, I had no idea you were doing things other than just being my dad. And that's been the fun part of it. As I said, it was no fun doing it in real time because it seems so consequential and the stakes seem so high. But looking at it in retrospect, I can now look at it and say, boy, that was pretty interesting stuff.
2: No kidding. Alex? Very interesting. Yeah, I remember I was in DC at the time and they meet people and say, I'm from Oregon. They'd say, Oregon, the Rajneeshis. And I'm like, <laughs> really everyone has seen this, this Netflix documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it's quite something to look back on. So, wanted to ask you just two more quick questions before we let you go. The first question I'll, I'll give to you, Bob, is just wanted to ask before we close what's in store for for the future of Harangue Long? So, of course, we had the recent you know, name change. We know that there's been a couple of new partners or shareholders that have joined the firm. What is the future of the firm like and what's kind of the direction or where are you hoping to take the firm maybe in the next five years?
3: Sure. Well, one of the things that we're very intent on doing is protecting the type of practice that we've had for 30 plus years now, occupying the space that we describe as being at the intersection of law and, and public policy politics as well. We have, through this experience, been able to handle some of the most complex and consequential matters in Oregon history while maintaining a pretty small firm culture of collegiality and teamwork. Colleagues like Bill continue to do extraordinary work training up the generations behind them and deepening our client relationships to make sure that we continue to provide clients with the quality of service that they've come to expect. So of course, one of our goals is to see that transition through to ensure that we remain you know, renowned as a, a firm in matters that involve law, public policy, and, and politics, in addition to being Oregon's, in my view, preeminent firm for appeals and the complex litigation and regulatory matters that often lead to appeals. And then at the same time, Harang Long has always been a firm with a diverse array of lawyers and practice areas. And we're always looking to broaden and deepen the services that we can offer our clients by bringing new lawyers into the firm. Uh, Alex, you mentioned that we have recently brought in a number of, of busy litigators. That's been a really exciting addition to our practice. And we remain, well, we continue to seek out and invite interest from other lawyers who might have an interest in being part of the team at Harrang Long going forward, as uh, we you know set ourselves up for another 65 years of law practice.
2: That's great. No, thank you for that. And then the last question I'll ask for you both, which is generally the easiest, is you know if folks want to go ahead and get in touch with you or if they want to reach out and learn a little bit more about the firm and some of your services, what would be the best way to do that?
0: There's another Netflix documentarian who wants to get in touch. Where, you know, where should they go?
3: <laughs> well, the, the, the easiest place to go is to our website. That's www.harang.com. Harang is H-A-R-R-A-N-G. You can also find the firm on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, and my Twitter handle is at Steringer Law. That's S T E R I N G E R L A W.
0: All right. We will try to link to a few. We've talked about a few things that uh, over the course of the episode. So hopefully folks will be able to find some handy links in the show description. But we just want to say thank you to you both for coming on the pod, but also for for believing in our little startup company here and being the first to step forward and be an advertising partner with us. It's meant a lot to us and, and helped us do some new things. So we really appreciate it.
3: Happy to do it
0: well we i've
3: I've been a, a long time listener to the podcast uh, since you guys started. Uh, we really do appreciate what you're contributing to the, the the dialogue in in
0: Oregon. So thank you for what you do. All right, everyone, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week.